This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. Our topic today is creation, the story of creation in the early chapters of Genesis. And I am pleased to have my good friend and fellow Chosen People board uh, colleague, Dick Averbeck, who teaches Old Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I got it all out, uh, <laughs> along with um, uh, being director of the doctoral program there with us. Um, uh, I'm just going to call him by his name, Dick. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Daryl. I'm looking forward to it. Um, our our topic today are the early chapters of Genesis and some of the things that get said about it. It's one of those areas that is fraught with um, controversy, virtually, as you say in in a review that you wrote on a book written on this. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, every good deed will go will go punished in dealing with yeah. this chapter. Any effort to address it. Um, people will be uh, wrestling with what you say and, and re in many cases reacting to it. But we're going to try and kind of clear out some of the core ground and think about what these chapters are and are not doing. And so with that in mind, uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about um, the relationship between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And just kind of to frame the conversation, there are people who say those two chapters kind of intersect with each other and are related to each other in one way or another, and then there are other people who say, no, these are two fairly distinct accounts and pictures of creation. So, um, and then you, I'm going to let you play with that however you want, uh, any combination or one preferred to the other, and, and why should we see it uh, one way versus the other in thinking about the relationship of these two chapters? Well, I think that uh, one of the things that stands out is that in chapter 2, verse 4, you have this uh, formula that called Toledot formula. It means generations mm -hmm. or accounts. Uh, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And this formula, in Hebrew, the Toledot formula, extends through the book of Genesis, and it links uh, the previous unit to the following. So it always refers to things that are already there, but then goes on and develops what happens with them, whether it's a genealogy or whether it's an account. So your point is this: these genealogies run through the book of Genesis, and they're outside the Genesis 1 to 11 that often is the, the topic of, of some discussion and extends into 20 to 50, so that puts us in a certain kind of genre. Am I, am I reading yeah, between the lines right? Yeah, it, it really is highlighting the fact that this is really connected to history. Okay. And uh, including chapter 1, but Genesis 1 is kind of like a, uh, a prologue uh, of the larger universe. And then Genesis 2, 4 and following, really goes into the, the, the cosmos of humanity. Mm -hmm. And so it zeroes down in toward humanity from the larger 
universe. Okay. Uh, so Go ahead. Connected through this Toledot formula, which means that, yeah, they are linked together, but they're uh, they're different movements as well. Okay. Now, that raises the question of what's the relationship of chapter two to chapter one then? Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, some people like to see it as in lockstep with uh, Genesis one, so that uh, Genesis two is just about the. Uh, uh, Genesis 2 is just about the, the, the sixth day in Genesis 1. There are some problems with that, because in the text, uh, what happens is that you get, for example, in chapter 2, the creation of the birds, mm -hmm. okay? And in Genesis 1, they're created on day 5, not day 6. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's things like this. Now, some translations try to get around that by saying that God had created the birds and and so on, but uh, the grammar of the text is really clearly a basic past tense narrative form, and it's difficult to justify translating it that way. Although some have done that. Okay, so let me let me let me take a shot at this. So Genesis one is like the big panoramic overview of how creation takes place, and then if I were a TV director working with script sheets. Um, Genesis 2 would kind of be zooming in on the creation of humanity, but there also is some literary um, collapsing going on and synthesizing and summarizing, if I can say it that way. So issues of sequence, which sometimes come up about the differences between the two uh, chapters, are understood better with that being in the background. And that's distinct from the view that says, well, really, chapter one is doing one thing, and chapter two is doing uh, another thing, and you shouldn't put those two together at all. And you shouldn't think about any kind of sequencing between those two at all. I, am, I, am I reading you right as yes, to which is yes, the better it's, alternative? It's, it, there, there is distinctiveness, but they're definitely connected mm -hmm. in the text, and we shouldn't ignore that. Okay. So, so the attempt to suggest that these are two fairly distinct accounts that basically are highlighting different aspects of how God created the creation in general and then the creation of humans in particular um, is, is a less than completely adequate way to read the relationship between the two chapters. Yes. Okay, um, and, and that's an important discussion because because it sets up uh, how one how we think about Adam and Eve and and two how we think about the relationship of God's uh, participation in the creation. So I'm going to transition kind of to our second concern in thinking through this. Um, there are a lot of things going on in these two chapters as we think about the creation. There's no doubt about that. And one of the ways in which this material can sometimes be handled is to ask the reader to make a choice. And the choice goes something like this. Um, these chapters are representative of who humans are. Uh, they're uh, archetypal, archetypical. Um, and, and describe kind of the or the role in creation of human beings, but we shouldn't press them too hard for their for their material contribution to how the creation has taken place. A kind of either or approach mm -hmm. to the chapter. 
And that's pushing back against the idea that could be framed in a variety of ways, and in fact is, that we're either dealing with kind of um, a very vivid snapshot of the step-by-step forms of creation, which are associated with some views of these chapters, or even a, a, a less specific and a less vivid way in which, yes, there's a generalized description of the way creation happened, but we don't need to choose between the fact that this is archetypical, this is, this is what God is saying about humanity, but it also is very material and very direct in terms of the role of Adam and Eve, um, a kind of both-and approach mm-hmm. uh, to the reading of this text. Uh, again, uh, and then you have some people who shy away from the archetypical category and just say, well, this is strictly about the creation of Adam and Eve. So I've kind of given you three views there. Um, how, do you, how do you see uh, these early chapters playing out in terms of those options? Well, I think that part of the point that is being made in the text is that the God, the the term Elohim for God overall, okay, is the term that's used for God in Genesis 1. But in Genesis 2, then it begins with this Toledot formula, and it says in the beginning, when the Lord God, Yahweh God, uh, uh, began to create, at that point, it goes. It starts using Yahweh, the covenant name of God. So there are two different names for God that are implied between these two chapters. Yeah, and 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 the uh, Elohim is in Genesis one. That's all. That's the only name. In Genesis two, it's Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is the Elohim. And what's happening here is one of the main points is that that God is making here is that the Elohim of chapter one is the covenant God of Israel. Okay. And that's very important to reading the text for the, from the perspective of ancient Israel, uh, and one of the main points that's being made. Now, as far as the archetypal discussion and so on, one of the things that I think is important is that these chapters are about what happened in the ancient world. So I would argue that there is real uh, historical reality here. There's a real Adam and Eve and so on and so forth. But uh, they're archetypal for us. Uh, One of the best ways for me to explain that is in the fall story in Genesis 3, we get these patterns of deception and doubt and illegitimate desire and so on. That's not not just about what happened in the garden. It is about that. It's also about what we keep on struggling with Mm -hmm. is deception and doubt and illegitimate desire and, you know, shame and fear and all these things. And it's meant to be read with the idea that this chapter is about the historical Adam and Eve, but it's also about what we deal with day by day. Uh, And so there's the archetypal, and that shows up in this as when you get creation, you get the pattern of existence. You get the the pattern of who these, who these, what these realities are or who these people are in such a way that it helps us to understand who we are. And that's what we mean by archetypal. And so I'm hearing you say that we don't need to choose between whether there's material historical description in here and, and or representation in here. We've got a, we've got a little of both. Yeah. Well, and one of the connections with that is that we know that in Genesis one it talks about, for example, on day four God made the lights to be signs for seasons and years and and so on. <clears throat> they had a particular function. 
and also then to shed light on the world. But it also says, so God made the two great lights to rule the day and so on. Uh, and he put them in the heavens. Mm -hmm. the, the point is that the text deals with both the function of things, but the foundational material creation of them as well. And it is uh, a mistake to try to drive a wedge between the two. Okay. So um, uh, now when we, th when we think about this, I mean, are we this – this may sound like an odd question – are we getting a movie reel presentation of how God did this creation, or is there something um, slightly more – and I don't know what other word to use uh, – literary and, and summarizing about what's going on? How would you deal with that particular aspect of the question? What do we do with the imagery that we've got here, things like carving out uh, of ribs and, uh, and that kind of thing, or even, even the sequencing of the days? Well, one of the things that stands out uh, in the reading of the chapter is you have this six days and then the seventh day the Sabbath. If we look through uh, the Bible and even the ancient Near Eastern contextual literature of the Bible, you'll find that the 6-7 pattern is used regularly as a literary motif. It's a way of shaping a story in an understandable way, and the ancient Israelites would be fully used to that pattern. Like in Proverbs, there are six things the Lord hates, yes, seven, you mm -hmm. know, in, in Proverbs 6, various places. And this patterning shows up in many different places, including construction of the tabernacle and the temple and so on. So what I'm uh, seeing here is that the shaping uh, of Genesis, the Genesis 1 through 2, 3 account is really shaped according to this literary pattern. And so uh, when we talk about uh, day one, for example, uh, I think what we're getting is not not necessarily um, a movie. It's more like a snapshot. Here's day one, and God is drawing our attention to this, and he's saying, I made it. Mm -hmm. And then he moves on to the next unit, the firmament of the heavens, and draws our attention to that, and he says, I made it. And he keeps on going through. Progressively through the chapter, these snapshots are... Uh, eliminating the conditions that we have in verse 2 of the deep, dark, watery abyss. Giving order so day, to the creation. Yeah, so day one is, let there be light, well, that eliminates the total darkness of, of verse 2, mm -hmm. and so on, and so on, and so on. So, in these snapshots, just to play with the metaphor a little bit, uh, aren't necessarily momentary snapshots, they are synthetic snapshots of the of the sequencing of the orderliness of a huge creation put compactly into into six pieces, if I can say it that way, with the rest coming on the seventh day. Yeah, the, the rest being the seventh day, so we get the six-seven pattern, right. which is, again, a, a very important literary pattern in the Bible. Mm. So um, I think that's basically what God is doing. He's trying to tell us by walking our step by step through it in a way that makes sense. It does reflect the structure of the world and the basic framing of what relies on that. So you have the, the, the dry ground before they get the animals. You know, you mm -hmm. you get the, the rakia, the, the firmament of the heavens before you get the, the lights in the heavens. Uh, all of these things. And the result is you end up with a kind of not just a cosmogony, not just a creation, but a cosmology. 
how does our world fit together and how does it work so there is so so there's both material content and functional description both at the same time yeah yeah but, and that you know of course you have to have the material creation but of course you have to have the function why make something that doesn't work right Right. And and what is the creation for? Where is it trying to take you? I mean, that's part of what Origins is all about. Is it just telling you where it came from, but telling you what its purpose is and where it's trying what it, what you're supposed to do with it. So you, you get this big picture view there in the Genesis 1 account and God says at the end it's all very good. And he did so it. We, and, and 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 he had made it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it's all very good. He's really happy with it. And then on day 7 he stops. He stops because he's done. That's what Shabbat, the word means, is to cease or to stop. Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, that's why you don't get any more days, <laughs> because he's done. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when you move into chapter 2, what you have is a bit of a shift, because you have things in chapter 2 that you find nothing like that in chapter 1, like the rivers flowing in Eden. Mm-hmm. And they talk about the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Well, those are realities that the Israelites knew were actual historical markers, you know, geographical markers in the real world of humanity. And uh, so there's there's a shift between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, linking them together and saying that this is about creation of our human world, and therefore we step even even more into historical realities that we deal with day by day. Okay. Um, so, um, the, the next transition, I guess, I guess, is the transition to, you know, what this is for. And, uh, and so this brings us directly into the discussion of the image of God, which is part of what we really want to concentrate on here. But let me, before I get to that, let me get to another idea that I think is extremely, or set of ideas that I think is extremely, extremely underdeveloped coming out of these chapters. Um, I, I like to say to my students that I was probably 20 years into my um, professional teaching career before I realized that there was a very important concept that I had heard next to nothing about theologically and that I still hear very little about, and that is the idea of being a steward. That we are to that we are called in the creation. It's part of the creation mandate. In fact, it's a central thing that we're asked to be. That we are asked to be stewards in the world to manage the world well together. That God made us male and female to manage the world well together. To subdue the earth, if I can use the language yeah. of the text. Um, I'd like for you to elaborate a little bit on that before we turn to the idea of image, because image is related to that, at least in terms of purpose. So, so talk a little bit about what Genesis is trying to do in presenting, a, in presenting any human being, whether they have a sense of relationship to God or not, as being called to steward the earth well. Well, yes, it is directly tied to the image and likeness discussion. And uh, we have lots of other places in the Bible, too, Psalm 8, so on, where we're put in charge. Mm -hmm. And it, we often talk about this as dominion theology, mm -hmm. as the kind of uh, understanding that we are given dominion uh, to, to actually live in the world in such a way that's good for the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're to rule the world like God rules the universe. He's put us here for that purpose, so we're responsible 
for what God has put us here to manage. And so this stewardship issue is a big deal, and it really can get us into even understanding uh, the whole question of our responsibility for the creation, and it can get us into some of these environmental discussions and so on, and how we handle the world is not just for us. It, we are here to manage the whole thing that's good for all. Yeah, and uh, and the concept of flourishing, which you don't hear, there isn't a term, direct term for it so much in the Bible, but it certainly is a theme, is the idea that we're supposed to manage the world in a way that, that keeps it, at least originally as planned, somewhat in harmony um, and, and, and functioning well and that kind of thing. Uh, it also sets up the whole idea of the, the together part, the fact that we've been made uh, male and female, and then, of course, across the story of the Scripture, you've got a variety of peoples that God is ha- mm-hmm. has allowed to emerge. It also sets the foundations, I think, for um, what the gospel achieves on the other end in terms of reconciliation, what it takes, what the gospel takes us back to. The doc- gospel takes us back to being good stewards of the creation together. In, yeah. in in a way that's harmonious, it lays the groundwork for what where love is supposed to take us. It lays the groundwork for where uh, justice is supposed to take us, etc. So this is a it's a mammoth concept. But you know, I tease people. We never have a course on stewardology, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, but maybe. Maybe we ought to. Um, it, it, it certainly is a big part of what would technically probably fall into anthropology uh, and, uh, and is, uh, sets the tone for what the assignment is, what the calling of human beings are as they reflect um, the capability of, of, that God has given us that is a reflection of himself uh, in the creation. And the word dominion is a tricky word because it, it, it suggests an idea of of domination and it certainly has that because it has authority built into it mm-hmm. but uh, but the way in which God has created man and women man and woman to work together where she is the helper the helpmeet uh, talks about a cooperation in that and an in an, an, a um, a complementarity in that that is uh, designed to mutually enhance what each brings to the stewardship. Um, yeah, the, the 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 text makes a distinction between the words that it uses for the relationship between the man and the woman, even post fall. Yes. Okay. It, it makes a distinction between those words and these like subdue. Mm-hmm. This word kabash. You know how it sounds. Even right. Right. I love that word. Verse twenty eight. Yeah. Where that is, there's going to be need for us to take control of this thing, right? You know, and 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 God is saying that right at the beginning. The point is that He's put us here for for managing it well, being fruitful, multiplying, and spreading out so that we're present in it uh, to manage it and so on. And that's going to take some. Yeah, we have to be who we're created to be. That's His image and likeness. Yeah, and I and I, I sometimes tease people that. Um, it's really interesting that, at least in, in Genesis 2, the driving climax of the creation is the creation of the woman. Uh, she finishes off the sequence and completes something that up to that point, in everything else that's said in chapter 2, there is an inadequacy mm-hmm. in the creation that she fills. Yeah. 
that's, I think, really an important point. And that's already set up for us in Genesis 1 when it talks the image and likeness, because it's the man and the woman together in that in that uh, that's section. Right. That is the image and likeness of God. We're together in this thing, and we need both to make it work. You can't be fruitful and multiply without both, and so on. Yeah. But then in chapter 2, it develops that further into the dynamics of the world of the man and the woman, and says the, it's not good that the man be alone. And so uh, the whole point of the movement is that man would have who he needs as his companion in the midst of this, and that they become one. There's no domination here in chapter two. And it's not supposed uh, to be a competition it's, either. It's a com- what's that? It's not supposed to be a competition either. It's a cooperation. That's exactly right. And so, so uh, what we have here is this this cooperation that is intended to be good for them and for everything else. Yep. And uh, and we even see this in chapter three when the failure happens because, yeah. um, in one sense, I think it's fair to say that the story of Genesis three is the failure of each of them to uphold the other in the midst of what takes place. Um, uh, and it's interesting because Scripture later on in the New Testament comes to blame each of them in one way or another for what took place, because they have each let the other down by the way in which the fall happened. Yes, and and in fact, God curses the serpent in the ground and has effects on the man and the woman. Mm -hmm. And the result is that that the repercussions are felt throughout. Nobody's kind of given a pass here Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of this. Uh, we're, We're all responsible, male and female. Yep, and I, I sometimes think that we we um, underappreciate um, that dimension of the fall. That mm-hmm. that the failure, you know, it could have been that God could have judged humanity at the point in which Eve hands the fruit to Adam, and you know, and encourages him to take and eat. Uh, but that doesn't happen until he um, until he himself. Responds and and they both fail together. Yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. And the next question is, what should they have done then? Yeah. In my view, they should have just run to God and say, now what we do? Now yeah. what do we do? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're in a mess here. And, of course, they did the opposite. They ran away and hid. Yeah. And, of course, the whole core of the temptation came in two parts. Uh, the first was a doubting about whether God meant what he said. And the second is in the idea of, look what you can be if you act independently of God. Yeah. That's a big part of the dynamics of our fallenness even today. Mm-hmm. So um, obviously these are profound chapters in terms of what they lay out for us theologically, etc. So with all that kind of setting the backdrop, um, let's turn our attention to 
the image of God. And I think part of what I want to deal with here is um, um, <laughs> who's responsible for creating the image of God in us, and what is it that the Scripture is depicting in that? And, and at one level, obviously, the answer is transparent. God is the one who made it. But, but how is this being depicted? Is this being depicted as, a, as part of a process that just um, – and this may I could be accused of characterizing here, but it just kind of fell into place? Or is this part of a process in which God consciously um, consciously injected himself into a process that says, I am making man and woman? Well, as I read chapter chapter one, uh, this is intended to be understood to be the climax of God's creative work, and that uh, He is going to inject His own uh, person, personality, into the creation through the creation of humanity, and they're going to function according to who He is, and that's the whole call. That's the whole mandate. Uh, in this context. Uh, part of the issue is that there's been a lot of confusion about what do we mean by the image and likeness. I've been involved in some discussions even very recently where scholars are debating this whole discussion, and I've had people, I mean, right from the front, you know what I mean, <laughs> saying, well, obviously we have no idea what the image and likeness is. Uh, the fact of the matter is we really do if we anchor it in what's actually going on in the text at its foundation rather than get so carried away with speculations uh, about it. There's a lot of metaphysical speculation that goes on around the image and likeness, but it needs to be anchored to what the text is actually doing. Okay, so you've set that up pretty nicely. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what the next question is. So what is the text doing, my friend? <laughs> well, one of the things that's... Um, really clear to people who are working in the in the Hebrew text is that the word for image, tselem, and the word for likeness, demun. This is statue terminology. This is very physical uh, terminology. It's, and we actually have a text from times of ancient Israel in which it's a text written on a statue, the Tel Fetharia uh, inscription. Uh, and this text uh, talks gives us an inscription on the on the skirt of the uh, of the statue of the king, and it starts out. This is the statue, the king, the demut, okay. Mm -hmm. And it comes around. Yes, this is the tselem of you know what I mean. This guy, and it does that twice. Mm -hmm. It goes around on that twice. We want you to get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. The point is that helps us here mm -hmm. in Genesis 1 with something that's there anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is we've been fighting the lexicon a lot mm -hmm. uh, in the whole discussion. It's clear that this is physical statute terminology, but we've wanted to make it so metaphysical that we've unanchored that discussion. Hmm. And so the anchor is found in that we are like or in uh, an image of God standing here representing him in the world. Okay, so and the key word is representation and a certain kind of representation. And that's what's on this other statue as well. It's yeah. the statue represents this king in this place before this god. Uh -huh. <clears throat> so the point is that the, this, this 
this concept is there clearly in the text, but we've become so metaphysical about it that we have lost track of where the anchor is that who we are to be in the world, which is the point we've been making. So uh, have we dematerialized the text, if I coin a term? <laughs> I think we have. Mm -hmm. And Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. This is basic statute terminology. We're not just a dead rock. Right, okay? we're, right. We're a, we're a, it, God's using figurative language here to, for us to get what our purpose is uh, in the world, and it's like a statue. But... Um, uh, well, it's like a representation of someone else. Yeah, it's a representation of someone else. Yeah. So, what, what it, God. Yeah. And so, what's important here is to keep that in mind as kind of the anchor for the discussion. What tends to happen uh, is that people then go into all the metaphysics of the capacities that we have to do that. Right. Which is what the text isn't talking about right. in Genesis 1. Uh, but there, God has given us all sorts of capacities to accomplish that. And I think we should be looking them more, at them more as a whole, and they are capacities, and that's important, but the text here is anchoring the discussion in our purpose in the world. He made us to do this. Okay, now, now I'm going to mirror something that sometimes happens in marital discussions, and I'm going to try and rephrase what you just said succinctly, okay? okay. And it's this, that we have been created to image reflect slash represent put slashes between all those words god in terms of who he is in his character by the way that we live and manage in the world yes i would add that he made us physically mm -hmm. and put us in the physical world to manage it physically mm -hmm. in other words there's there's a real physical emphasis in the text based upon the basic terms that are being used, mm -hmm. and he's trying to say, he's made a physical world, so now he wants it to be properly managed. And so it's very tied into that at, at the root of what the image and likeness is. So when we say we're made in the image of God, what we're really saying is we're made to, to be uh, divine representatives in this stewardship, reflecting uh, his, his presence and character. Yes, and, and that's, the, that's the neat thing about it. It's, it's not a theoretical discussion. It's about what we do mm -hmm. and how we are and how we relate to God and one another in this world. And that's really what this whole thing is all about. It's, it's not a theoretical discussion. It's about, it's about function. It's about how we handle ourselves and how that relates to the entire creation. And so sometimes... Uh uh, the, the early chapters of Genesis are described uh, in ways that make clear it's, it, the earth is like this sacred space, it's like a temple, mm -hmm. um, uh, which also is a part of this imagery, which, which gives, uh, how can I say this, it, it sanctifies our activity in the world, or at least yeah. it's designed to portray the idea that the work that we do, even the mundane work that we do in managing the world, there's something appropriately sacred about it because it's part of this imaging and stewardship that God has given to us uh, in making us the way that he made us. Yeah, we're, we're, we're the stewards of it. You, you could say we're the priests of it. it the, the whole idea of it is that we're here to take responsibility for it and to see that things go well. Which means that when we fail, we're accountable for the failure. Yeah, absolutely. And you got to add to that a sanctuary God is present. 
Mm-hmm. And we're doing it in the very presence of God because He is the Creator who actually is showing, manifesting His presence in the world. And we are dealing with the fact that He's actually present. And therefore, we live, or are supposed to be living, uh, recognizing that we're right in the presence of God now. Yeah, I tell people that one of the most basic ideas in the Scripture is that uh, whether we are a believer or not, we are accountable to God whether we recognize Him or not. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and so, and that goes back to the core of the creation. It actually is the foundational basis that is the appeal for uh, for taking the gospel to everybody is because of that accountability. When we look at uh, the apostles in Acts, um, presenting the gospel to someone who doesn't know anything about the Bible. They don't know schmatz about the Bible is the way I like to say it. You know, they don't know Genesis from Malachi, etc. Where do they start? They start with the idea of you've been created by a creator God to whom you're accountable. Yeah, and, well, and, and and Paul even used that in Acts 17 in this really interesting way, the unknown God. Exactly you know, right. Exactly right. It's fascinating right. to see how he does that because he uses what they have to try to get at the issue of the gospel. Exactly right. And 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 uses their their spiritual awareness that there is a world out there to which they are having to respond. Uh, but then he narrows, he narrows their their many choices of who it is that they're obligated to, down to the one who they're obligated yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He really, he really kind of uh, does uh, uh, just a fascinating thing there in terms of using the cultural context to get at get where he's going. Exactly. So, um, so let's let, let's kind of. Um, zero, and we've we've done a good job with image here. Let me let me come back to the idea of of God creating us in His image. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I th- I think there are two ways in which this this is sometimes portrayed. One is is that God starts out a process and it ends with this so, ends somehow along the way with this image of God being injected into the creation in the process. Um, those who are inclined, and I've tried to avoid all the controversial terms and just stay in the text, but I probably can't do it at this point. But those who are more inclined to say what might be called at least a form of theistic evolution would say, you know, God wound up the clock and there's a process, a scientific, he's been active in it all, it's his creation, you know, they're trying to be clear about that, but basically it winds down and, and at some point uh, some unspecified point, the image of God came into this process. Um, I think what I'm hearing from you is goes slightly differently, goes something to the effect of, no, when Adam and Eve came on the scene, this was a um, creative act of God. God was acting all along in whatever he was doing in the creation before he got there, but this mm-hmm. is a moment. Yeah. In which God says, now we're going to bring something to the equation that wasn't there before. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't there before, and it's, uh, it's brand new and, and unique, and that's why he uses the word barat in this case, uh, is to try to get us to understand that this is really unique and special. Okay. Now, sometimes the pushback on that is the idea of, well, the moment you suggest that God injects himself into the gap, that might be one way that it says, or you use the term supernatural versus natural, you're thinking like a modern person. 
Uh huh. Uh huh. And and my reaction is no. That's that that is a misrepresentation of what's being described. What's being described is the idea that yes, God has put into place a process by which He creates and by which the creation functions and has some level of order. But there are times in which He moves in to enhance what it is that He has previously done and what He has gotten started. And and that's not a matter of natural or supernatural. That is a description of the way in which God has chosen to to launch the project, if you will. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. He created the world so that it works. Mm-hmm. He, he, he he's he, so he even says like in uh, on day three, he even says, uh, "Let the earth bring forth." You know, what I mean? so there's these secondary causes that he's pulling into it, saying. This function is a certain way, and that bring you know, and he's setting up that ongoing function. He's meaning to create a world that is, by its very nature, productive. So I'm flipping the switch, uh, if I can use an analogy. It's like I've designed this, and at certain points I flip the switch, and now the elect juice is running. <laughs> yeah, and and part of the problem <laughs> is that um, sometimes in the scientific world they don't want to see God stepping in. Mm-hmm. They want to see it as an evolutionary process that. He wound up at the beginning, and he made it so well that it just functions the way he wants it. Yeah, it just runs. But the problem is, that's not the way the Bible describes God. He steps in in the day of the Lord. He does you know, yeah. various things. He, does, he hasn't separated himself. Unfortunately, sometimes theistic evolution um, has a lot of evolution in it and very little theism. Mm-hmm. And, and and the result is we get almost a deistic evolution. Uh, and and the, and the result, and we, we end up with a God who isn't really active. He wouldn't step in because he made the process purpose perfectly in the first place. But the Bible tells us he does step in yeah, explicitly. So he's and not as so, much a spectator in the creation, uh, but he's more a participant. Very dynamically involved in it because... He's vested in it. I mean, he's made us in his image and likeness, and the whole thing is to be managed by us. He, he, he takes it so seriously that he even comes to a point where he sends his son to die for us. I mean, mm-hmm. God doesn't do that for insignificant beings. Right, right. So I, I do think that there is a, um, if I can say it this way, a theology, an active um, theology being expressed here that has, as we've already suggested, both material elements in it and uh, archetypal elements in it, functional elements in it, they're all there. Um, And the danger sometimes is that we get – and we've kind of approached the entire podcast this way – the danger can be we get so locked up in the controversy that we're having about creation and evolution, et cetera, that that becomes the focus of the discussion, doing the apologetics related to those questions. Mm -hmm. And in the process, we miss actually what the emphasis of the text is about describing who it is that he's made us to be. Yeah, yeah. And that's really the whole whole point of the revelation is to for God to communicate to us who we need to be because of who he is. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we miss that, we've kind of 
aborted the whole process. Yeah, and if uh, I can stick at something in the middle of that, it's it's who we need to be because of the way he made us, but it's also who he's called us to be because of the task that he's given us in making us the way that he made us. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, and, and that takes us back to the steward and image uh, steward and image imagery. That gets tough yeah, to that's say. Right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, and that's why it's it's so important to understand that we are part of this physical world. Mm-hmm. Uh, in chapter two, we're referred to as nefes- living beings, like the animals are referred to in chapter one as living beings. The same terminology. Uh, we're part of it, and yet we're. We stand out because of who God has designed us to be. Yeah, I like to tease people that there aren't, there, as far as I know, there are no First Presbyterian churches of dolphins <laughs> yeah. and First Baptist churches of bears. Yeah. You know uh, that uh, that there Except is. Except up in Chicago. Uh, <laughs> well, no, no, no. That's a football team. That's a different deal. That's a different kind of worship. Anyway, uh, but uh, uh, you're going to draw me in a direction we don't need to go. Uh, and uh, but the the point here is is that we have a capability of relating to this being who made us uh, that is unlike anything else in the creation. Yeah. And that's part of the covenant part. And the interesting thing about that is, and but this is a whole other podcast, is that relational dimension with God, which which expresses itself in the covenant structures of the Old Testament, shows a personalness of engagement that God has with us that some very famous mono- monotheistic religions tend not to have. You know, and, and here I have Islam in mind in particular with its emphasis on the sovereignty of God, but its lack of discussion of the covenant relationship and the love that God has for people. Everything goes through the lens of submission rather than the lens of relationship. Yeah, that's, that's why we need both the transcendence and the imminence in our real understanding, because our God is, is really dynamically involved in all that goes on from before creation to consummation and beyond. And so the, the, this is uh, something that he's personally involved in as the sovereign God overall. And the other dimension that that injects is, is that it shows the amount of investment that God has put into the relational element of how he has made us to be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which, which sometimes, in the midst of our pursuit of, of right understanding and those kinds of things, we can minimize. And yet, when the rubber hits the road, it's always or often always at the level of how we're relating to the people around us. That takes us back to the creation mandate because oh, we yeah. were called to manage the creation well mm-hmm. together. Together. Yep. Yeah. And so yeah. it's always corporate and it's always yeah. social. Yeah. And it, it is important to understand that, that man, when he talks about let us make man in our image, he's not talking about making one man. He's talking about humanity because the verb then, and let them rule. Yes. Okay? It's, it's not a singular thing so much as it is a collective thing in terms of how we function. Now, it can be understood in a singular way too, like in Genesis 5 mm-hmm. with Adam and so on and then on into the Noahic thing in uh, chapter 9. The point is that uh, you can think of it from both directions, but where this really begins, this whole concept really begins, is with the collective. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and 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 it becomes the basis of of um, all our all our core ethical responsibilities um, yeah. because we were desi- we're designed to stand next to other people who share in the task that God has given to all of us. Yeah, it's uh, un- unfortunately because of the the fall. There's this enmity. And it shows up there in chapter three, when, with, uh, you know, when he's in the garden hiding from God, and God uh, confronts him. Uh, the man says, "Well, you know, the woman, you know, that you gave me, by the way." Yeah, she okay, did it, and you did it. She, 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 you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. She's blaming the woman and God. And, yeah, yeah. And, and the woman just blames the serpent. So nobody's responsible here. You That's know? exactly <laughs> it, right. It's always transferring. The responsibility to someone else and that is such a pattern amongst us that we destroy relationships yeah when and, we don't uh, own our own junk we create our own junk yeah that's right and it's really um terribly destructive to to in all sorts of contexts in marriages as well as in churches, in ministries, in all sorts of ways. Yep. Well, um, uh, Dick, I thank you for taking the time to, to help us walk through this passage and to help us focus on some core themes that, that we think it's about. And uh, we, we, um, uh, this is a obviously very uh, fundamental material theologically, very rich material uh, theologically, and, uh, and you've helped us uh, walk through it. So I appreciate you giving us your time to help us do that. Thank you very much for the opportunity just to talk through these things with you. Yeah. And we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us at the table and hope you'll be back again with us soon. I enjoy, I enjoy this, yes. Yeah, good. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. And we thank you all for listening and trust that you will be back again with us soon as well. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.